podcast starts. Hello everyone, it's TD Velasquez, but as ever you can call me Dan, and I hope you and your loved ones are all safe and well. I'm here very briefly on my own to let you know that this episode is another in our short sequence of somewhat re-edited re-uploads from the previous podcast series that Howard and I created, the Lee Cushing podcast. A brand new Lee Cushing episode is coming out this Friday, but the discussion you're about to listen to was recorded by the two of us in 2016 and concerns the highly unusual science fiction come horror come political conspiracy thriller Scream and Scream Again from 1970. We begin with something special from the archives, a recreation of the film's originally intended opening scene. Never actually filmed because screenwriter Christopher Wicking accidentally left the script pages in a waste paper bin in a hippie commune in Crouch End, this is the only known recording of the scene, which would have featured Peter Cushing as Major Benedek and Christopher Lee as Fremont, here expertly doubled by myself and Howard. Enjoy. Come in. Major Benedek. Ah, Mr. Fremont. Come in, come in. I don't wish to disturb you. It's just I'll soon be leaving for home, so I wanted to thank you for your hospitality during my stay in your mysteriously unnamed Eastern Bloc country. Ah, yes. Well, it is always a pleasure for us to receive distinguished visitors from Great Britain here in... I hope I haven't interrupted some important state work. No, actually, I was just reading the newspapers for a minute. When you get to my rank, you are permitted the occasional moment to loaf, as it were. You must be careful on your return to London, you know, what with all these murders going on. Murders? Yes, they are calling him the Vampire Killer, responsible for the brutal slayings of a number of young women. One eyewitness says he looks a bit like Mick Jagger. How disturbing. And he seems like such a a nice boy. Who, Mick Jagger? No, Keith. Keith Richards? No, Keith, uh, uh, yes, Keith Richards. Very polite as a young man. Such a shame, isn't it? Kicking records, though. I have all of them. Benedek. Oh, good afternoon, Conrads. Yes, of course, I will officially deny everything, so get on with it. And this time, clean up afterwards. Sorry about that. State business. Where were we? I was just saying I know nothing of this so-called vampire killer called Keith. There's also the mystery of that missing Olympic athlete. The police are still no closer to finding him. I'm sure they're getting closer, piece by piece. Oh, you know something of the matter? Uh, No. Did you just authorise state-sanctioned torture over the phone? Of course not. You know, Mr. Fremont, over here the police force and the Secret Service are the same thing. You mean a secret police? It saves a lot of paperwork. But are they any good, though? Our secret police? Yes. I don't know. We never see them. (laughs) 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 What larks. You know, we get on so well. We really should do this more often. Oh, that would be delightful. But you have to go back to England. I'm sure to come back soon. I would love to meet your delightful friend, Conrads. Oh, a lovely idea. But I have a strange feeling, you know, that we will never meet again. Really? Quite. Certainly not later in the film. Oh. Well, that's a sad thought. Yes. So... This is our final opportunity to share good times. Oh, well, in that case, can't we go to a discotheque? That's a freaky idea. You only live once, Major Benedict. You know, there's one just round the corner. Then what are we waiting for? 
uh, make sure you have your papers. It's a Soviet discotheque. It is? Probably. Come on, let's go. Perhaps the stones will be on. You'll be lucky. we're talking about this week um, is okay um, <laughs> yeah it's a the very present the, actually when I first saw this film many many years ago the continuity announcer actually did that he said and now the film will be and there was a scream and he said scream and then there was the sound effect of the scream and scream again and it worked really well when he did it well that's <laughs> We made a decision um, not to go in chronological order through all the films that Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing made and, and, and approach it in a more holistic fashion um, and kind of uh, look at it like putting an album together or a mixtape of your favourite songs. Last time we did Dr. Terrace House of Horrors, which was produced by Milton Sabotsky, and so is this film actually, but it's a very different kind of film. It's a very different kind of film. And it's a significant film, a very important film in one sense, in, is in that it is the first film to feature Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price. Because although these podcasts are dedicated to Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, there was another great horror star of the 60s and 70s. He was American, but he made a lot of films in Britain at the time. And that is the great Vincent Price. Yeah, it's a very significant film in that sense. I feel that not enough people have seen it because I don't get the sense that it's discussed much. So, um... Hopefully we'll we'll rectify that. I mean, obviously, if you if you're a very hardcore horror fan and you've read the very scholarly and in-depth books on horror movies, you'll know about Scream and Scream Again. But I think if you're slightly outside that, you might well have missed it. It's interesting that last episode we talked about Dr. Sarah's House of Horrors and Milton Sabotsky, the producer, who also wrote that film, which I never said in the actual podcast because I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. And he also had something to do with getting the Curse of Frankenstein off the ground. So we've mentioned him two episodes in a row. And now we're mentioning him again. Yes, because great man. He's the producer of this film. Um, and his company, Amicus, uh, which again, we didn't mention that he was only half the company. His business partner was Max J. Rosenberg. And they were both from New York. Um, and Max J. Rosenberg is kind of the cliche of the, of the no-nonsense, tough-talking New York businessman. Uh, Milton Sabotsky did this kind of thing because he loved movies, he loved horror movies, he loved pleasing audiences. He was a showman. But Max J. Rosenberg was a businessman, and he did it to make money. And he didn't much care about the, the content. He 
he lived longer than Milton Sabotsky. He's been interviewed for DVDs and things. I think you can find some interviews with him on YouTube, and he's he's fairly open about the fact that he didn't really care. Um, he didn't really like the kind of movies they were making at all. But that didn't mean he didn't exert his influence on them. I mean, for instance, there's a, a movie that we'll be take, talking about later in the podcast. Um, its original title was going to be something else. The director wanted to call it Death and the Maiden. And it was um, sub- it was Rosenberg, I believe, who said, no, it's called The House That Dripped Blood. That's just the way it is. Oh, he also called... They, 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 they made a movie of a novel called Fen Griffin. And he turned. He changed the title to. And now the screaming starts. Yeah, if scream is in title or blood is in the title, that uh, that worked for Max. You know, it seemed yep. to be. You know, get uh, no no messing about. Just keep it. But interestingly, I think perhaps he didn't title this film. Uh, it's based on a novel called The Disoriented Man. So they obviously came up with their own title, but I don't think it was entirely down to him. But Sabotsky and Rosenberg weren't quite as in charge of this movie as other Amicus films. In fact, this film's not billed as an Amicus film. Did you notice that? No. It's it's an AIP film, American International Pictures, a very kind of initially uh, very low-budget uh, American outfit, kind of the American equivalent to Hammer, really. Um, and they'd started making gothic movies in the late 50s, early 60s, kind of spurred on by the by the success of Hammer. Um, well, they made all the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe films, didn't they? Yes. So uh, Vincent Price definitely had a relationship with them, with AIP. Yes. You know, he, he'd done a lot of stuff for them. Well, basically, AIP was starting to make movies in Britain. In the 50s, they'd made loads of uh, very cheap horror teen, teen market cash-ins. I think um, maybe, uh, like, I was a teenage werewolf and that kind of thing. Attack of the Giant Leeches. Is that definitely an AIP? Yeah, that's one of theirs. Right. Um, Um, AIP, again, it was two um, sort of hucksters. Uh, James H. Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff. Samuel Z. Arkoff. Or Samuel Z. Arkoff. It always reminds me of Dr. Zarkoff from Flash Gordon. (laughs) And I just, you know, but it's Samuel Z. Arkoff, which is just, which is still a great name. Uh, Still a great name for a producer. Yeah, absolutely. And in the um, in the fifties and early sixties, they took on Roger Corman as a producer director, who learned his craft in basically churning out tons of movies per year, um, cheap or exploitation films. And he would do things like Little Shop of Horrors. I think he wrote it and he shot it in two days flat. I think. Yes. Um, for instance, that's the rumor. Anyway. Just just because the, there was a standing set that could be made use of. Um, yeah, so they, they let him kind of do what he wants. They trusted him to make product that would um, come in on time and would make money. And he started to make um, adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories in the early 60s. I think the first one is The, the House of Usher. first one is The House of Usher, then there's A Pit and the Pendulum. Uh, they're, they're not all uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I think there's um, Nathaniel Hawthorne as well. Oh, well. Stories. There's one called Tales of Terror. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Roger Corman assembled, not just Vincent Price, he assembled this extraordinary cast of horror legends. Boris Karloff is in some of these films, Basil Rathbone's in some of them, Peter Laurie's in some of them, Lon Chaney's in one of them. So, in a sense, all these kind of, like, uh, veteran horror stars were sort of, like, had this new lease of life in this in these AIP films, which had been inspired by Hammer. Yeah. And, you know, Boris Karloff and, and Lon Chaney hadn't made many colour horror films. Suddenly they were in colour. 
And mm. even though they were older, they were sort of appealing to a, a newer audience, a younger audience. So in a way, Roger Corman gave them uh, a kind of a new lease of life in a way. Although Vincent Price was always the star. He was yes, always the main star. he was the star from the very first one. And the um, the Edgar Allan Poe films, which, as you say, were not always based on Edgar Allan Poe stories, but were generally billed as being based on Edgar Allan Poe stories. There's one called The Haunted Palace, which I watched recently, which is called, in the credits, Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. But if you look at uh, the writing credit, it says, based on the poem by Edgar Allan Poe, and the story, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. And it's actually, and when Corman started making it, they were they were going to bill it as a Lovecraft movie and call it that. But AIP had noted the success of the Poe adaptations and said, no, it's a Poe film. So they put Poe's name above the title. They added a bit of the quote from the poem at the beginning and the end of the film. And, and they did similar things to a, a few of the later Well, Witchfinder General was known in America as The Conqueror Worm, which is an Edgar Allan Poe story. Now, yes. Witchfinder General has nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. It's a poem. Uh, Witchfinder General has nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. But because AIP was so renowned for doing the Edgar Allan Poe films, the producers must have decided, well, we'll sort of give it a kind of connection to Edgar Allan Poe so people will think, you know, mm. they go and see it. Uh, that brings us up to... Really, because... The success of this series of Poe films had led AIP to branch out. They started to want to make productions in England. Some of the later proper Poe adaptations, Mask of the Red Death and The Tomb of Ligia, they were filmed in England by Corman with a mixture of British and American casts. Um, And Vincent Price sort of became a British horror star because of that. And then doing other British horror movies like um, Witchfinder General, which is a Tygon production that was only distributed in America by AIP, but that, which is why in America it was known as one of the Poe series, but in Britain it wasn't. So then you have AIP coming over to Britain and being a presence in the British film industry, and then you have Amicus, who just emerged as a rival to Hammer, and they'd done Doctor Terrors, they'd done Torture Garden. Um, and Milton Sabotsky was an ideas man and a, and a project man, and he bought the rights to a book called The Disoriented Man by Peter Saxon. Uh, he wrote a script based on it, and Amicus couldn't do it on their own. They needed external financing, so he brought it to AIP, and AIP said, it's great, this can be a Vincent Price vehicle. And somebody had the inspiration to also bring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing into it, and then sell it on the fact that those three stars were in it. Um, but because it wasn't entirely an Amicus production, uh, AIP must have put up the majority of the money because they exerted more control over how it was made. It was the director that they assigned was Gordon Hessler, who'd previously done um, a Vincent Price horror film for them called The Oblong Box, which I watched the other week and really isn't very good. No, I haven't seen it for a long time. Um... It's, uh, uh, yeah... Well, no, it was it was it. It's not necessarily um, Hessler's fault that it wasn't great. It was a, a very compromised production because it was originally going to be directed by Michael Reeves, who then mm-hmm. died, um, and uh, Hessler didn't write didn't like the script, so he brought in Chris Wicking. In fact, the scriptwriter also died. It was written by a very old um, American writer uh, who died shortly after submitting the script. And the director looked at it and went, right, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get this this British writer I know in. And the writer he chose was Chris Wicking. And in fact, that's the same process that happened on Scream and Scream again. Milton Spotsky had written the script, but 
but Gordon Hessler did not like it. And he brought Chris Wicking in to not rewrite the script, but just throw out the scripts and write his own version of it. Um, and as a result, we got a very strange film. And although it's it was sold on the three horror stars being in it, and in fact it, it, the great tagline that they had on the posters was triple distilled horror <laughs> as powerful as a vat of boiling acid um it's really well vincent price is the the most of the forefront of them so that it fits into um aip's run of vincent price horror movies it's a vincent price horror movie it has two other great horror styles in it as well but you know he gets top billing and he's in it more than they are so I think maybe we should just talk about Vincent Price for a minute. Well, yeah, well, Vincent Price, I mean, yeah, like you say, there were there were three great horror stars of the time. Um, we've dedicated these podcasts to Peter Cush and Christopher Lee because they were in so many of our favourites. But Vincent Price was certainly a presence in British horror films at the time. I mean, Vincent Price had a very distinguished career, started on Broadway in the 1930s. In the 1940s, made lots of classic films, including the, the iconic sort of film noir, Laura, with Gene T and Ian Clifton Webb. Fantastic and film. Keys of the, yes, it is. Absolute classic. If you haven't seen it, see it. Um, and things like Keys of the Kingdom and The Ten Commandments and His Kind of Woman with Robert Mitchum. And, and he was kind of a matinee idol. And but he, he, was, was, kind of he, like, was yeah, off... he was sort of a matinee idol. He, had, he could have been, but he had this sort of waspish sense of humour underneath that to kind of mm. undercut that. So and he was so he was more interesting as a sort of as a villain or, or as a, a character actor. Well, no, what, what I meant to say was that although I think of him in his early career as being kind of like the American James Mason, playing those kind of semi-villainous, caddish, Gainsborough movie type guys, like the one, he, the villain he plays in um, Dragonwick, for instance, which is, um, again with Gene Tierney, it's a, it's a historical melodrama, and he's kind of the romantic lead, but also the villain. That it kind of was his main thing, I think. But but he did have a wide range. He he. There were films where he was the romantic lead. There oh, were yes. films where he was an interesting supporting player, like he is in Laura. Um, there's quite a wide range of stuff. Um, at that point, it was only in the early fifties with a movie called House of Wax that he suddenly found that he was a horror star. Well, he became a horror star in the same way that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee became horror stars after The Curse of Frankenstein. It was the first horror film they'd done, and they both became stars from it. Um, Vincent Price became a, star, a horror star from House of Wax. Even though I think he played the Invisible... No, he'd been in a film called The Tower of London with Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone. Okay. Which is not necessarily a horror film. It's more sort of like a gothic melodrama, if you like. It's about uh, Richard III killing off all these enemies. Um, so Vincent Price had a slight connection with horror films, but his, his horror career started properly with House of Wax, which was actually a 3D film, I think. Yes, it was. Uh, which Directed was a, by a one-eyed man who couldn't yeah, see 3D. who couldn't see it. A man called Andre de Tote. Yes. Uh, Nicely pronounced. He had one eye. Uh, and that film was hugely successful, a massive success, and that led on to um, a film called The Tingler. Have you ever seen The Tingler? I haven't. William Castle's The Tingler. Yeah. yeah. Um, just mad. I mean, <laughs> you have to see it um, to believe it. But yeah, he made a lot of films. And then he got uh, involved with the AIP Edgar Allan Poe films, which he was absolutely suited for. That voice, that wonderfully rich velvet voice he had was just perfect for those sort of that kind of um, dialogue and those sort of characters and those sort of films well but i mean poe's writing speaks of a kind of sickening of the soul i think in, in his poems and his stories even though they're very beautifully expressed there's a kind of a corrosive sense to well what there is a sense, yeah i mean you watch them i mean 
They are very literate. They're probably more literate than the Hammer films. Well, were. what I was going to say was that I think Price was the perfect actor to choose to express that kind of thing, and that's why it makes sense that there's a whole series of films of Edgar Allan Poe, and he's in all of them, not as the same character. No, but he's always the kind of the soul of what happens and the focus. And sometimes he's more villainous, and sometimes he's more not heroic, but you know, more innocent, mm. um, more sympathetic. Yeah. But always, he's a very strong dramatic core to yes. the movie. Because I think, um, I think Vincent Price's reputation slightly suffered. I mean, everybody loves him and everybody thinks he's great. But I think some people think that when he did horror films, he was always slightly setting them up or being a bit tongue-in-cheek or he's camp. I think people say, oh, Vincent Price is always camp. Um, and he was in some of the films because the characters he was playing were camp. Yeah. The Abominable Dr. Fives is a camp film. It's a kind of a bit of a send-up. It's, it's a bit comedic. But when he had to play it straight like he did in The House of Usher, or like he did in Witchfinder General, then he plays it straight, and he's brilliant. It's a proper performance. It's mm. just, I think people have seen... and Because I saw, I'll never forget, um, seeing um, Vincent Price making a guest appearance in the Tommy Cooper show. All right. And that's the kind of thing he did later on in his career, when he sort of, like, done a lot of comedy and stuff like that. And, and I think people have this image that he was, he, he was quite waspish, and he was always slightly sending it up, but he wasn't taking it seriously. But he did take it seriously when... He needed to take it seriously. Well, um, you're not the only stage star in the room, Howard. I've also just done a, a play in Manchester, a ghost story set in the 50s called The Haunting of Blaine Manor, written by a good friend of mine, Joe O'Byrne. Got great reviews and things. Phil Dennison, who, Howard, you know. Yes, I do, yes. He was in the play that you've just yes, done. Yes, indeed. Um, he was compared to Peter Cushing. I think the review said, um, Phil Dennison returns Peter Cushing to the land of the living. Which is pretty good. I wish, uh, and I thought oh, I'd love someone to say that about me. Um, there's another actor, a wonderful actor called Andrew Yates, who was directly compared to Peter Laurie. And another reviewer compared me to Vincent Price. Um, now that's a great comparison. I, I was very pleased with that, and I, and I mention it not just to big myself up, obviously partly mm. to big myself up, but um, because I mentioned that to my. Um, oft-cited sister Maureen, who listens to this podcast now. Hello, Hello Maureen. Maureen. Hello. Um, and, uh, yeah, I said, I've been compared to Vincent Price, and she said, um, why? Because you're a terrible ham. <laughs> That's what be... I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm, I'm talking about. And it's it's not fair, because, as you say, he, he only did that when the tone of the movie was appropriate to, for doing that. He did, he did, I suppose, more light-hearted films, more slightly spoofy films than Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee did. Mm. They did the Hammer films, which are always absolutely straight and dramatic and, and they had elements of black comedy in them, but they were played straight. And so, to a certain extent, with the Ambergris films. But the films Vincent Price did, like Dr. Fibes, like a film called Madhouse, with yeah. Peter Cushing and things, and the Comedy of Terrors, which is with Peter Laurie, they are more, they are more humorous. They're, more, they have, they're lighter films. They're more, they are, well, black comedies, I suppose. Um, and he was able to do that. He did that brilliantly. But... He wasn't a ham at all. He, you know, he sort of like, he played a ham. In Theatre of Blood, he plays a hammy actor who kills all the critics who gave him bad reviews, which turns out to be all of them. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so he's playing a ham. But because he's playing a ham, so when he does speeches from Shakespeare, which I think he does absolutely wonderfully, I mean, my interest in Shakespeare came from Vincent Price, uh, watching Vincent Price do those speeches. Yes, he's, do, yes, he's hamming them up, but at the same time, because he's got such a wonderful voice, they sound terrific. You know, yes. so that's what Shakespeare should sound like. But yeah, so, he, but he plays a ham in that film. So people think, yeah, Vincent Price is a ham. He hams it up, which he doesn't ham it up. I don't think he hams it up in Scream and Scream again, particularly. No, he doesn't. He's 
he rem- there's there's a police investigation element to the film. Um, so you know you get detectives coming around to his house and saying, "Where were you?" And it feels like an episode of Columbo. What's it all about? Dr. Browning won't like being disturbed this time of night. He's not supposed to bloody well like it. Just get him, will you? Good evening. I'm Dr. Browning. Do you want to see me? Detective Superintendent Belliver. It's about a Miss Eileen Stevens. Do you know her, sir? She works here, yes. Is she in trouble? Why do you ask, sir? Well, you'd hardly get us up at this hour of the night if she wasn't. She, uh, she with a boyfriend, you know? Well, I really have no idea. Tell me, is she from London or, uh, all around this way? I think she's from the north. I got her through an agency. Please, can't you tell me exactly what she's done? She hasn't done anything. Putting it crudely, someone's done her. What? She's dead. He is a Columbo villain, isn't he? No. Oh, he uh, isn't? He should have been. Of all the actors that should have been, he was in it. He was in an episode where uh, Vera Miles from Psycho is the murderer. And he's not all that much. He's just like a... a sort of like a, um, somebody that Columbo questions. or Somebody who's involved. Right. But not, he's not in it very much. Um, which is disappointing because he would have been perfect as a Columbo murderer. I'm a big Columbo fan, so yes. I mentioned that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a fairly small part, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so uh, and that, and he has that that quality of a man who could be innocent, but could be guilty. You know, he he's a he's a plausible suspect yes. that you often get in a crime drama he does he, he that you know he doesn't open the, the door and go yes <laughs> he's not obvious mad scientist no you know um he's actually quite sympathetic in this i mean he can't even when he's playing a villain vincent price can be quite sympathetic there's something kind of um likable about him because he's uh, well it's a, in that sense that i was talking about with the edgar Allan poe films of the corrosion of the soul um Sometimes you get a sense that even if he is kind of evil, it's not really his fault, you know? Well, in Theatre of Blood, I mean, he is, although he kills nine people, he's kind of sympathetic. And in Dr. Fives, uh, although he kills a lot of people, Vincent Price killed an awful lot of... Uh, he got he, <laughs> he murdered his way through British actors' equity a lot in the 1970s. <laughs> a lot of British character actors were done in by Vincent Price, but with great style and great elan. Um, but even in those films, you, you kind of feel, even though he is ostensibly the villain, you kind of feel for him. And you kind of feel he is hard done by. And you sort of understand why he's doing it. And he can bring that quality to it. And in this film, he sort of, um, well, I wasn't giving away the ending, but you kind of think, well, he, yes, he's a mad scientist, but he, because he kind of believes he's doing the right thing or, or something yeah. for science, he's sort of... Uh, he's kind, know, of, kind of he's kind of strangely gentle. Mm. If you compare him to Cushing's Frankenstein, Frankenstein's a scary, evil guy. Yes. Um, Dr. Browning, I think he's called, yes, uh, in this film. Um, you know, he seems quite reasonable. Um, we shouldn't discuss him more before getting into the, the more details about the film itself, but I just want to mention, um, as we've just outlined, Vincent Price had, therefore, a very long and, and distinguished and flowering horror career that kind of went into the through the 70s, and he was... in. I think his last horror film is a 1987 movie called From a Whisper to a Scream. Mm. Um, but I, I would say, and you know, it had bad patches and he's in a Kenny Everett film and, and some, some naff things. But I think it came to a quite appropriate final flourish, which is, of course, him, his voiceover on Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. 
Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Which is a great song, made even better by the fact that it has... Um, a terrifyingly spooky recitation by Vincent Price pasted onto the end of it. Um, and I mention that not only because it's it's Vincent, but also because uh, Rod Temperton, the uh, English songwriter who wrote Thriller, has just died. Uh, he's only in his yes, early I just, 60s. I, just, I, don't, I don't know much about him. But My friend Tim's told me a lot about him. He was a, a big collaborator with Michael Jackson and he's you know and the sounds guy you wouldn't have thought the thriller uh, which has lines in it like creatures crawl in search of blood around y'all's neighborhood <laughs> you wouldn't have thought that was written by an Englishman it's a great piece of Americana that song and um, but it's really good and he wrote it so anyway God bless you Rod Templeton yes. rest in peace <laughs> Okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about our beloved Vincent Price, let's get into the storyline and the plot a little bit of this. Um, The Disoriented Man by Peter Saxon, or The Disorientated Man, I always say disoriented, which I think is the American. Yeah, I never know which is right. I always said The Disorientated, but then sometimes I say The Disoriented. (laughs) It was published in Britain, so I'll say it's The Disorientated Man. Right. And um, Peter Saxon was not a real person. Did you know this? No, I didn't. Uh, Peter Saxon was a pseudonym used by the publishing house, and they put his name on a load of books. There's um, a book, a novelisation of another Peter Cushing film, which I've never seen, which sounds interesting, called Corruption. I've never seen that either, Uh, Uh, but I'd like to. The novelisation has Peter Saxon's name on it, but God knows who actually wrote it. And with Scream and Scream again, there is a theory, I'm not sure if this is actually true, that it's not even written by one person. Um, it could, it's written by several different writers who each wrote different strands of the plot, which makes sense when you look at the movie because mm. there are, I think, three distinct plots, plot lines in the movie that never, al- almost never intertwine until the end. Well, you say it makes sense. I'm not entirely sure. That <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, not... I, 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 it's ironic that the, the book is called The Disorientated Man. Is that that's exactly how I felt watching this film. It was... Um... Well, the, the the thing is that, that Chris Wicking obviously embraced that kind of structure when writing it. And maybe he got that from the book. But he kind of used it in his later horror movies that he wrote as well, like Demons of the Mind and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and To the Devil a Daughter. Um, and I think it often works remarkably well. Um, Kim Newman in his book Nightmare Movies says that Wicking juggles the plot lines with uh, remarkable confidence. And I think it's so, that sort of right in the sense that it's a very entertaining film. You don't often know what's going on. Well, you see, I I, <clears throat> I think I, I like this film less than you do. Okay. Because I, like, I haven't seen it for a very long time, and I watched it again for this. And I did find it confusing. So I mean, it starts with a man uh, jogging, uh, sort of Mo Farah-like, uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, through a park, and he collapses, and then he wakes up in, in a hospital bed, presumably, uh, and one of his legs has been removed. 
Uh, and then suddenly, the next thing, we're in Eastern Europe with this strange fascist party running things. Uh, um, and Norman Clegg from Last of the Summer Wine mentioned um, is sort of like this sort of bureaucrat who then gets killed. Peter uh, Salis, yeah. Peter Salis. And then uh, we're in sort of swinging London when there's a, a vampire killer on the loose and Alfred Marx, who's really good in this. He's terrific. He's terrific. Yeah. He should have had his own detective show, I think, because he would have been superb. Um, Belliver. Alfred Marx is Belliver. Anyway, he plays <laughs> Superintendent Belliver. And they're chasing after this uh, homicidal maniac who looks, and I think deliberately, like Mick Jagger. I think that's entirely intentional when he's sort of like his fancy shirt. It's played by a very interesting actor called Michael Gothard. Y- yes. Or Gothard. I, I would have said Gothard, but I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, and, so, and we keep going from one plot to the other. And they're all kind of interesting, but I just don't... I, I, quite, I don't quite know what's going on um, for quite a lot of the time. You often don't, but I think the scenes are, are, tend to be gripping and interesting and well done. And um, you move from one thing to the other. Um, and before you've had too much chance to get so confused that you lose connection to the film, something exciting or funny happens, or a character appears. Well, there are some great is... moments. I mean, I don't, I, are we allowed to mention what happens when Michael Gothard is handcuffed to the car? Yes, I think we should. Uh, because th- this is the scene, I think anybody who's ever seen this film remembers, certainly when I watched it at school, but this is the scene we all remembered. He plays this murderer, they capture him, uh, they handcuff him to the car, and then Alfred Marks and the other policemen see him running off. And how, how do you get away? How do you get out? And then they go to the back of the car and you can see his severed hand in the handcuffs, um, which everybody thinks that's odd. Uh, uh, yeah. That gives you... <laughs> um, I, I feel I should mention at this point um, the, the entry for this movie on Wikipedia, I feel is slightly misleading. I mean, I did learn things like the, um, the, the nature of Peter Saxon from reading that. But it says at the top of the article... Because it features Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, Scream and Scream Again is often thought of as a violent horror film. In fact, this is untrue. It is um, a political thriller in the manner of the parallax view with science fiction elements. Uh, Yes and no. It is a violent horror film. It's got a guy pulling his own hand off and and, uh, severed limbs and things and also horrible attacks well, on it's women in of, it. It is about, it's a horror film, it's a science fiction film, it's a conspiracy thriller, it's a detective story, it's got all these elements. It's like everything but the kitchen sink is going to kind of be thrown into this. That's thing. why I like it yeah. so much. Well, uh, yeah, I kind of... I, I, I did sort of enjoy it, but I, I just find it really confusing. Um, but the, the, the great moments are really great. But I just, I just find it a bit... There are some characters, I don't know why they're doing the things that they're doing. Yes, and you're talking about Conrad. I'm talking about Conrad's the big burly sort of. Uh, well, he's the villain of the piece. He's this well, one of these fascists. Jonathan Rigby argues in his book English Gothic that the two lead characters, despite the, the the names on the poster, the two lead ca- characters of the movie are Detective Superintendent Belliver and Conrad's Belliver and Marshall Jones. Um, a completely forgotten actor. I've, I've, ne- I've never the... seen him in anything else. I didn't know anything about him. I've he's never built heard. at the bottom of the cast. Um, I think he's 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 really interesting. He looks like a kind of acromegalic John Thor, <laughs> um, and he he strides through through the film as this sort of terrifying, unstoppable Conrad's character, um, who is some kind of official from this fascist state. Don't worry, you will tell me. You will. 
you will. Who will obviously stop at nothing to achieve his aims and keeps removing people who are in his way. Um, so, because he's got, for some reason, he's got the ability to squeeze a person's shoulders yeah, to death. Yeah, he's able to um, kill people in a very sort of unusual way. And nobody seems to know. He kills all these people and nobody seems to do anything about it. No, that's, just... that's, that's a definite hanging plot thread, which I think Chris Wicking thinks is answered by the closing twist of the movie but it isn't really no um but i think he's really good he is in the next gordon hessler vincent price film after this which was cry of the banshee which i've also never seen i've i've seen a bit of it and i lost interest quite quickly um it's thought of as kind of a a cash in really on which find a general it's it once again it's it's that same kind of milieu and it's another Chris Wicking script, but it's an original script this time. It's not based on anything. Um, but yeah, he's in that, and he's also in, in Crossroads. At some point, he oh, was in Crossroads. Um, now that is horrific. <laughs> but yeah, but it, it, it's very strange that he kind of has this sort of lead role. Yeah, but it's interesting that all the lead roles, you've got this all-star cast. You've got Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Gushing, Alfred Marx, all these people, and all these familiar faces like Peter Salis and people like that. And Jutta Stensgaard. Jutta Stensgaard. Who's uh, Camilla in the Hammer film, Lust for a Vampire, and stuff like that. And yet the main parts in this are taken by a guy called Marshall Jones, who I've never heard of, and a guy called Christopher Matthew, or Matthews. Matthews. Matthews, who I think is in a Hammer film. He's in Scars of Dracula. Yeah, but he's not, hasn't done much else. He's also in um, the last episode of Doctor Who with William Hartnell. Oh, well. I, I, I almost think possibly... If anybody's listening to this um, is a Doctor Who fan, or uh, what I should say is any Doctor Who fan should listen to this podcast just because of um, they probably like the actors they, they love. They would know so much more about and um, appreciate so much more if they watched Hammer films. Yes. Um, because it's a lot of the same actors. We should almost probably have a little bell which goes off whenever we <laughs> mention a Doctor Who guest star. So it's like, ding, Christopher Matthews. Yeah. Um, he's he's okay in this movie. I think cast. Oh he, yeah, he's fine. He, he kind of just... he kind of emerges as a, as the sort of hero, and I think he's maybe a bit weak to carry that kind of weight. But he's he's fine in the role. But after this, he he then disappeared. Mm. And speaking of um, people that you don't know who they are, um, do you know who Amen Corner are? musical combo of the time. I have heard of the Amen Corner, but I don't know too much about them now. I wonder if this is Milton Sabotsky's influence. Um, you know, bringing in a bit Well, of... we know that Milton used to like bringing in musical personalities. We know Roy Castle and Kenny Lynch mm. in Dr. Terrace House of Horrors. Uh, and we know that he made a lot of musicals, very low-budget musicals in the early 60s. Oh, and God bless the um, commenter on britishhorrorfilms.com. Who, in response to our Doctor Terrace podcast, said, 
One of the remarkable things about Dr. Tara's House of Horrors is that it, it managed to cast so many icons of British popular culture in the 60s without casting a sex offender. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Thank goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah, gee. At least not we know of. Um, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, I can't remember the name of the person who said that, but you know who you are. Um, that made Thanks me for listening. Laugh. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. But uh, yeah, so Amen Corner were a, a Welsh combo who were briefly big in 67-68. Uh, there was a, a nightclub that they all used to go to, which had a place in it called the Amen Corner. So that's what they decided to name their band after. Um, thank you, Wikipedia. And I think almost the last thing they did together was this appearance on Scream and Scream again, and then they split and they became other groups and things. But... I have heard of them outside of this film. Okay. I didn't know they were in this film until I watched it again recently. So I, I had heard of the Eggman Corner, probably watching some old music programme or something or something. But what, uh, somewhere. And this brings us to the, the question of the music in the film generally as well. Apparently when this film was made, somebody didn't do their job in terms of um, nailing down the release rights to the music. So whenever it was on TV, until very recently, um, it had the entire original score was replaced, and the Amen Corner music was um, taken out. So I think the version you saw, it has the Amen Corner in it, but they're not actually singing; they're oh, dubbed right. by someone else doing a different song, and um, and it has a a soundtrack of stock music. Whereas the version that you'll see on DVD that was recently restored and that I saw has music by David Whittaker. I, I always remember, it, I, you know, it took me quite a while to find out why this is, but because um, I remembered seeing it on video, even when my video was kind of locked away in the attic and stuff and I hadn't seen the film for years, I could still remember the opening of Scream and Scream again with the guy running along and the very kind of unprepossessing jazz thing that goes... Boom, 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 boom. Does that know what I mean? You've watched it recently. Does yeah, that have yeah. any impact? But yeah, so that wasn't the original. That's some cheap piece of stock music that they obviously found and stuck on the movie. And the, the, the real score for the film is a bit more robust than that. Here's the music from the start of the film as it's seen on TV, the version that Howard watched. So this is the version, this is the music that you will have heard on a TV broadcast until quite recently. When I first watched the film, that was the music that was on it. Probably for you too, although it was obviously a long time ago for yes. you. Um, so when I watched it again, um, with the proper score restored, which sounds like this. sounds euphorically that's better. much better that's much better piece of music and um, the the music is by david whittaker do you know much about him i don't know anything about a composer called david whittaker um i think you might know about a writer called i think david i might know whittaker. about a writer called david whittaker um, but yeah. no it's a different guy um but you do know about him um david whittaker is a hammer composer 
He did Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and Vampire Circus. Oh, oh. Um, There's a show on Radio 3 called Sound of Cinema with Matthew Sweet. And on the episode about Hammer, he talks quite a lot about David David Whittaker. He started off scoring um, kind of low-budget porno films produced by um, David Sullivan of the Sunday Sports in like the early 70s, late 60s. And then kind of moved in, 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 to doing Hammer stuff and other kind of horror movies. But his greatest claim to fame is... Or rather, what should have been his greatest claim to fame is... Do you remember when The Verve released... That, that string sample string from that sense. song, they had sampled it from um, an instrumental recording of a Rolling Stones song. So they got sued twice. So this is why uh, the verb were completely obliterated and Richard Ashcroft more or less had to go underground for many years. They first got sued by um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards because they wrote that song. Although actually... They had nothing to do with the actual piece of music that had been sampled because it was a sample from the instrumental of the song that somebody else did. So then the Verve was sued again because they'd already lost to Jagger and Richards. They were sued again by um, the guy called Andrew something who produced that album. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and he had the mechanical rights to it. So he was able to prove that he was owed massive amounts of money and he completely took them to the cleaners. The ironic thing is that Although he was the producer of that track, he did not write the particular string sequence that was causing the problem. The guy who wrote it was David Whittaker, and he did a lot of work, um, a lot of pop music work in the 60s and 70s. And he was never mentioned in any of the court cases. Um, and someone, uh, you know, common music commentators have pointed out that if anybody should have received credit for that sample, it's him. And it's a, a beautiful, lush... It's now used as the theme music for ITV's football coverage. Is it really? Symphony, yeah. Right. So it's oh. heard fairly regularly now. So, yeah, so that's David. It's great, I love, that. I love that song. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise it was so controversial. I did wonder what had happened to the verb, why they all just sort of <laughs> vanished without trace. But it's weird, because obviously um, David Whittaker fell through the cracks a number of times in his life, because he's, you know, he was... His music wasn't even heard on this film for many years, mm. for some reason. Uh, I think in, in the version that's on TV with the stock music, there's no music by credit. They just cut the credits out and yeah. they just pasted some music over the film. Um, so, yeah, that was something I enjoyed finding out about with regard to this film. And and going on from the music, I do think one of the strengths of of the film is that there's a sense of youth culture in it. You Definitely. Know, there's the, the the nightclub sequences. Um, there's a character in the movie called Keith, Michael Gothard. He's the vampire killer. He he cruises nightclubs looking for victims. They call him the vampire killer uh, because the, does he drain their blood? I don't know if he drinks. Well, he drinks the blood from a girl's wrist. Oh, yeah. So he when does. all the police start beating him up. Oh, that's and then right. He throws them all over the. That's good. There's some great bit. There's some great action scenes in. There's a wonderful car chase, mm. uh, which goes on quite a long time. And there's some great fights and everything. And even Vincent Price has a fight at the end, which is not something you see very often. Yeah, he, he he engaged in fisticuffs. Well, he wields a fire extinguisher, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, the set pieces are fantastic like that. Um, and I think when you compare, especially if you're kind of knowledgeable of movies at the time, um, and you compare the, the, the kind of portrayal of, of young people and, and clubbing experiences and stuff to something like Dracula AD 1972, this is great. Mm. It, it's it's really on the bottom. And um, the Eamon Corner music is, which you heard at the start of the podcast, dear listener, it's much better than the kind of stock rock pop music they, they put into the TV version of the film. Um, and th- those scenes, the, 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 the young characters are convincing. Um, the whole movie, the movie is lit by John Coquillion, by the way. I think I'm pronouncing his name properly. Or well, yeah, no. I saw it go up the other day and I wasn't quite sure. It looks like Coquillion, yes. Yeah. Coquillion or Coquillion. Um, Johnny maybe, Coquillion, maybe I think, it's is billed Co- as in some cases. Yeah, I think maybe, well, it's, maybe it's Coquillion. Um, he's one of the great sort of outdoor cinematographers. He had shot Witchfinder General for Michael Reeves and... I think he shot Cry of the Banshee as well. And then in the 70s, he, he went on to some more kind of international projects like Straw Dogs, he shot. Um, all these movies, I feel like I'm forgetting a really important example of something brilliant that he shot. But they all look gorgeous, mm. the movies that, 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 that he lit. They have a real wonderful use of light. And one thing I like about this movie is, because you have kind of repeated scenes where people leave nightclubs and go somewhere after clubbing and it's 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 often not night anymore it's very early morning and and you get this real queasy uh, that feeling that you do get if you emerge from a, a pub or a club at about 4 a.m yes which we've and, which, which, which we've which, all done in our student days certainly yeah, my yeah, goodness we have been there and uh, yeah i think that that's really well captured as well and um, and it's really important for the film to do that well because this is the environment in which the vampire killer, with the uh, with the wonderful name of Keith, Keith. Um, operates. Well, yeah, I think it is definitely going for it. It's like the audience has slightly changed for horror films now because in the early ones, certainly in the Hammer ones and the Amicus ones, most of the leading characters are sort of in their 30s or 40s. Certainly Peter yep. Bush and Christopher Lee were in their 40s and 50s when they were, they were playing the lead. And even in the Hammer films, if it's not Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, it is another middle-aged character actor like... Andrew Keir, or Andre Morel, or Clifford Evans, or somebody like that, or mm. Eric Porter. Rupert Davis. Rupert Davis, yeah. So, uh, although horror films have always kind of intended for younger people, the, the, the audience for those seems seem more general. Whereas, I think after Witchfinder General, and after another film Michael Reeves did called, um, oh, what's it called, with Boris Karloff? Sorcerers. Oh, The Sorcerers. The Sorcerers, yeah. which is very much about youth culture, and it's about sort of like older people's jealousy of youth culture. And so, they're starting to make films now Intent uh, targeted to that audience, a younger audience, a younger kind of trendier audience, um, for the which is why they do Dracula AD 1972. They're trying to, you know, appeal to that particular demographic. And fil- American films like Rosemary's Baby and Night of yeah. Living Dead have sort of also identified that audience. And so it's kind of like all the middle-aged actors from the earlier films now being replaced by younger actors. But uh, but the successful films that you're talking about that do this, like The Sorcerers and uh, and a few others, are the ones where the generation gap is a source of conflict. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, whereas in movies like Dracula AD 72, um, kind of the leads in that movie are still Cushing and Lee. They still, and, and, Peter and, Cushing still has to sort everything out at the end. And these two worlds are grafted badly mm. onto each other. Whereas in The Sorcerers, it's all about old versus young. Well, that's what it is. It's about mm. old people's jealousy of youth culture. Yeah. You know, and kind of disapproving of it. At the same time, getting 
getting off on it. And with old versus young, you get the um, the, the parallel conflict of the established versus the new. And I think in a lot of these movies, you start to have a, a theme developing of um, the establishment or the authorities um, misleading young people or people booking against what the, the establishment tries to force on them. Yeah, I think so. Because again, you have to say this was the time of the Vietnam War, a lot of student protest, mm. a lot of anti-authority feeling at the time. And these films are kind of sort of harnessing that in a way and sort of, you know, connecting with that. This kind of like young people's disillusionment with authority, with the system, and that's and that's in this film, I think. You know, it's all the old guy. You know, Vincent Price is the old guy, making artificial people that go around killing people, and Conrad's is you know is is killing everybody he seems to come into contact with, uh, and I think that's definitely. But it's interesting. This film was made in 1969, and for me, it's kind of like half 60s and half 70s film. It's on yeah. the cusp. Yeah. It's got that sort of flashy kind of slightly surreal, wacky style of 60s films. It, it's got sort of like the fragmented style of a, a 1960s spy thriller. Yeah. Like the way it goes from one thing to the other. But it's also got that, the seediness uh, and the cynicism and the more explicit quality of a 70s film. When Keith does attack the girl in the underpass and stuff like that, that's quite... Yeah, that's you know, a and, and sequence. The violent moments. Are, it's sort of like on... It's between two styles in a way. It's and, it, like, and again, because the film is so fragmented and does... It, it is able to do different things, those two extremely contradictory things, with equal force. Yes, yeah. It doesn't feel like a kind of um, transitional film. It's got everything yeah, in it. Yeah, it has. It's, it, got, it's got everything in it. Um, I just think perhaps it's it, it's a bit too much. I think No, I think you're probably right. Um, but It tries to do too much. You know, I admire it for its ambition. Mm. Um, and it is trying to be something different. It's not trying to be just another vampire film or you know werewolf film but it's trying to be trying to do something and, and something relevant something contemporary to the time well and I, like, I just... you know um it was part of the the kind of new wave of british films where the the people the creators the writers and the directors weren't just referring to the old hammer films and and the kind of establishment of british horror they were bringing in influences from European cinema mm. from from Hollywood and things like that. I think Gordon Hessler and Chris Wicking both described this movie as like a homage to uh, Don Siegel films oh, like well, Coogan's Bluff. Yeah. You know? And well, actually, I think they that they um you know Siegel being the uh, the great American action director who did Dirty Harry and well, you also made Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has certainly has a connection. Well, um, with this film, it's Wicking sort of... said he viewed this movie as a cross between Coogan's Bluff, which is a kind of uh, road movie western police procedural yes. thing, kind of midwestern cop thriller with Clint Eastwood, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is an alien takeover uh, kind of movie. It's probably um, the best of all the alien sort of invasion films of the nineteen fifties, I think. Yeah, well, it. Quite possibly, it is. It is. It is a great movie. I, I'm very fond of the remake as well, actually. Um, uh, I prefer the original. I, I probably prefer the remake. <laughs> I saw the remake first, though, and that's. But but and Don Siegel's in in the remake. Yes, so, as is Kevin know, McCarthy. As is Kevin McCarthy. Is, uh, so, uh, uh, but in in a but um. But they're they're both in it in a way that's interesting, which you yeah. don't get with remakes these days, where they just rope in a star. Of well, the yeah, they bring in in like in the terrible remake of Get Carter, and they bring in Michael Caine just to kind of make it seem like well, Michael Caine thinks it's okay 
yeah. you know, he's agreed to be in it, so he must think it's okay to do this remake, even though it's bloody awful. Yeah, my um, mate Mike used to say that it's like they're just rubber stamping it. Mm. They're showing that it's approved. Yeah. So that the well, audience... they pay like okay, a lot of money to do it, mm. and so that gives the impression that he sort of thinks it's okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. But um, um, but going back to the point you we were making earlier, going back to the point we were making er- earlier about the intergenerational thing, um, Chris Wicking was obviously a young screenwriter. Um, he was, uh, and he wrote, he went on from this film to write movies like Blood and the Mummy's Tomb, which mm. takes the kind of established Hammer format and definitely brings an intergenerational I think that, that, that's conflict. a very successful film. I think that's a great film. I actually. bloody love it, yeah. yeah. I, so do I. Um, uh, and, uh, but something interesting that uh, I discovered when researching this, I mentioned earlier that I don't think... Although the movie is called Scream and Scream Again, it was based on a novel called The Disoriented Man. Um, I don't think either Milton Sabotsky or Rosenberg were responsible for the title in this case. I I read that it was actually Wicking who suggested changing the title to Scream and Scream Again, which I found baffling um, because it, it, it's such a schlock title. It's a, such a generic... You, uh... Half but, the horror films ever made could be called Scream and Scream Again. It's, yes. It doesn't have any kind of connection but, to the film. But well, but, but then I thought about it in in um, the context of the anti-establishment feeling and the old versus the young. And you could almost read it as like a political rallying cry, Scream and Scream yeah, Again. It's a bit like Tears for Fears saying, shout, shout, let it all out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the minor strike. Um, that may be a touch fanciful, but... Um, <laughs> But I, 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 when I, when I thought of that idea, I went, "Whoa, yeah, maybe." So, it's not, it's not less much less schlocky than most titles of British horror films of the, of that time. You know, the Blood Beast Terror and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and all those. You know, I mean, there was that. That was the way they were. Yeah, subtlety was not required. The only it? thing I don't like about Blood from the Mummy's Tomb really is the title. Mm. I wish it had been called something else. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's like it's a sequel. To a film called Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Yes. So it's like they couldn't even be bothered coming up with a complete new title. Let's just change one word or two. So, yeah, we've discussed the movie quite randomly mm. in terms of uh, what's in it without we're trying not to give away too much of the plot. But yeah. at the same time, I, I think that it is such a fragmented narrative and a strange film with a kind of ambitious storyline that there's a lot that we can say. Um, we can just describe images, scenes, or characters, and not really describe how they relate, because the film doesn't really no, describe it. No, it, it is. Um, it, it leaves it to you to put together. So in a way, it's, it's almost spoiler-proof. This film. Mm. There are a couple of great developments that we won't reveal. No. Um, I'll just say that there are moments in the movie that are shocking and surprising. Yes. But I think we should just discuss. Um, it, it it says something that we probably talked about this film for half an hour or something without really mentioning Peter Cushing I was going to say this is the Lee Cushing podcast and we haven't mentioned uh, Peter Cushing Christopher Lee who mainly because they're not in it very much well Peter Cushing's only in one scene I'm prepared to give that away if anybody's what uh, tunes into this film because they want the big team up of the three uh, Cushing's in one scene um, and he's uh, and Lee and Vincent Price are not in that scene so the three guys are never on screen together it's a bit like 
Um, the Expendables. It's it's even worse than Arnold Schwarzenegger's at The Expendables, where you got one scene where Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, and Sylvester Stallone were in a movie, just so they could in one scene together, so they could have their names on the poster. But actually, most of the film is just Sylvester Stallone and his mates. Um, yeah, so you you don't get much of gushing. It's a good scene with gushing. Well, I was going to say. I mean, I want. This is interesting. This because um, it is only a cameo. For for, um, for Peter Cushing in this, and it's a fairly thankless part that any other actor could have played. Mm. Uh, and you kind of think, well, the thing is now, yes, they do what his name does have marquee value. They do want to put his name on the poster, um, and so they've cast him in this rather kind of undemanding part. And it's a little bit you kind of think, well, it's a bit sad that now he's become so associated with horror films, they can just put him in it a little part like that. Because yeah. I think, even in my opinion, I M H O, as the young people say. Uh, Peter Cushing is one of the finest screen actors this country ever produced. He's he is brilliant. He's, he is. he's just wonderful. He's just he has such control and such sensitivity as an actor, and it's great. And when you see him playing a part like this, you kind of think that talent is being a little bit squandered, because it is such a small part and yes. a fairly thankless part, just as this sort of like fascist bureaucrat. And he does get killed. I don't know if he's giving much away. He gets killed. Um, yeah. Um, because I think uh, you could tell that when. when, when yeah, he From the he's, beginning of the scene, the, the, he's Conrad's superior and yes, he's killed by Conrad with a famous um, sort of shoulder pinch. The man and the girl. You tortured them? I interrogated them. Of course. You listen to them. Is unhappy enough? We did not force them to celebrate our five years of domination. We have party unity. Those who dissent but eventually converted, thanks to people like us and our methods. Cushing does do a very good death. He does have a brilliant death. That's, so that's what I mean. It's, that's it's what's sort of, worth watching about. He's such a brilliant actor. In fact, all the people who die do brilliant deaths. All the oh, people right. Conrad's kills, I think. They're yeah. all slightly different, but they all... Um, there's one in particular, which I won't say, which certainly is quite shocking. Yes, uh, yes. A little bit gorier than the others. But, like, Cushing's brilliant. Now, but it's at this time, because I read this book last year that said, if there was ever a time when... Peter Cushing perhaps should have made slightly fewer horror films and done other things. It was in the mid-60s. Because by the late 60s, by 1969, he is very much typecast and he's very much associated with the horror genre, which means he's not being offered other kind of parts in other kind of films, which he was more than capable of doing. He is kind of like stuck in horror films now, which is great because he's always brilliant in them and I, I love his... And he makes them better. But at the same time, you watch him in some of the things, in, in, in this, which is really good in this, of course. But you watch him in this or you watch him in something like The Beast Must Die or something and you think, well... There's a really great actor not being given much of a chance to show what he can do. You know, um, there's, yeah. there's a lot of small parts. He should did. have been in Hollywood by this point. He should have know. been. He should have been. Well, he should have been doing, you know, he should have been doing. Why isn't he in Murder on the Orient Express? Why isn't he in A Man for All like Seasons or that sort of thing? He's more than yeah. capable of doing that. It's because he's been typecast. Now, he is perfect. In one sense, you say, yes, these films made him a star. Mm. So, you know, he wouldn't have been a star, perhaps in other kind of genres. In war films, he didn't quite have the, you know, Jack Hawkins quality, whatever. But he was very perfectly suited to these films. But sometimes after this time, and in the early Hammer films, he's got a great part, you know, as Van Helsing or um, Baron Frankenstein or Sherlock Holmes, he's terrific. And he's really got a chance to prove himself. But in, um, in, in some of the 70s stuff, it's just like he's being cast just because they can put his name on the poster. Just because Peter, you know, yeah. is a name you can do. Same thing happened to Bela Lugosi, all through the 40s. Mm. Bela Lugosi had bit parts and small parts, but it's Bela Lugosi in just because his, his name, you know, is, will appeal to that audience. And I just think Peter Cushing kind of got... Christopher Lee was able to get away from horror films to a certain extent. He did The Private Life of 
Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Another Sherlock Holmes reference. Billy Wilder, another kind of films. He's in one of the airport films, or whatever. Whereas, kind of Peter Cushing got stuck. Um, I uh, I think Lee had a a great ambition. I think to... Peter, yeah, Peter Cushing had less ambition, and also after his wife died, I don't think he yeah. cared that much what he did, and he, he liked working with people that he knew. He liked working for Hammer and stuff. But the same, Lee so, would do things like relocate. He'd move yeah. to LA or he'd move to Europe, whereas in order to get different kinds of work, and he could speak several languages. Yes, well. whereas Peter bless him, um, didn't he couldn't live anywhere but England. Peter he, was, he was happy, quintessentially English. He was happy uh, in Whitstable. Yes, and, and I, I don't. Blame Whitstable him. was happy with him. Um, so yeah, so so it's great. I mean, he's always brilliant, but it's just sometimes, like in this film and in some of the later ones, you think, well, there's he's so good, but he's playing. The, the, the character's just so kind of two-dimensional or so stereotyped that it's not being given. I, I love him. I He's my favourite actor, I would say, but I just sometimes think he's not been given the opportunities that perhaps he should have been. There, yeah, there is a sense that he he achieved a great amount of things, but he should have achieved more, I think. I, I just think if casting, if directors or casting directors were a bit more ambitious or a bit more, you know, just giving him... Or back, yeah, perhaps he should have gone back to the stage, or perhaps he should have sort of done other things. And he was very humble as well. I mean, there was that great quote from him in an interview in the late 60s. I think he was asked this on many occasions. There's a clip on YouTube where he's... Um, I think it's in uh, Mark Gates' documentary, A History of Horror. Mm. Um, there's a similar bit, but I remember the quote where he, they said, do you mind not being typecast? Wouldn't you like to do something else? And he said, "You basically said, well, look, nobody wants to see me playing Hamlet. No, they quite. want to, they want to see me being Frankenstein. So but the I'm thing happy is, to do that. I think some people would have liked to see him play Hamlet. Yeah, they didn't That's know the that. thing. And he was capable of playing Hamlet, or well, playing Prosper or whatever, playing yeah, yeah. some of the great classic parts, or doing just other kinds of things. Yeah, Murder on the Orient Express or something like that, or doing some doing some Pinter or some you know, just keep on making the horror films because he's brilliant in them. But I just wish he'd been given other opportunities as well. Yeah, which he sort of was at the end." You know, he was in Top Secret, you know, the the, the comedy film, and he's in yeah, yeah. a version of A Tale of Two Cities. So at the end, he was able to get away from... But just at this time, in the late 60s and 70s, he is very, I think, typecast and very synonymous with the genre, and he's not really given chances mm. to do other things. And I just think, in a way, this film exemplifies that, because it is such... He is only in it, so they can say, this is the first film with Vincent Price, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in. Yeah. And it's just, you put his name on the poster, and he will appeal to that audience. But he is great. In yes, it. it's, well, it's a lovely little cameo role. Um, maybe lovely is a strong word. He's very good. He's very it's a good. good scene. A consummate professional. Um, you, did you know um, something else for the Doctor Who fans listening here? Recently, Peter Capaldi appeared at New York Comic Con and somebody in the audience put up their hand and said, who's your acting guru? And... He looked thoughtful for a second and like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to answer that kind of... And, and I expect him to say someone like, um, you know, uh, Jacques Lecoq. <laughs> or, you, you know, or uh, not Stephen Burkhoff, but, you know, some, someone, like who's, that, yeah. someone who's known as a yeah. practitioner. And he went, well, I always loved Peter Cushing and Christopher <laughs> Lee. And the audience <laughs> applauded. It yeah. was fantastic. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank God somebody is... Mm. Um, He's well, no, he is. I mean, the fact is, Peter Cushing now is loved now more than a lot of classical actors. A lot of, you know, ostensibly more successful actors yeah. were. You know, there's more. There's more websites about Peter Cushing than there's about Paul Schofield or Michael Redgrave. Or you know, Peter Cushing is is mm. kind of revered by by 
us, by us horror film fans, it's just a shame that if you're not a horror film fan, you don't perhaps know how good he is. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, and there aren't that many opportunities to find out. No. Um, There's a lot of TV stuff he did has been wiped, so... But there are things, and we'll come to them later in the podcast, there's some surprisingly eclectic films on on the list. Oh, yes. Um, So having mentioned Cushing, talk a little bit about Lee. His role is not that much more satisfying, but it is... He's in several scenes. Yeah, he is in it a bit more, uh, playing a sort of civil servant who... Actually, he seems to be enjoying it, actually. He's got that scene where he talks to Conrad's in Trafalgar Square or whatever. Yeah. But he looks like he's actually quite enjoying himself. They heard so much about you. They wanted to see what you really looked like. What are you doing here, anyway? Or are you here just for the shopping? We have your pilot, Friar. An interesting situation. A real-life pilot from a real-life spy plane. You know the trouble he could cause for you if we wanted him to. But you don't want him to, is that it? can have him back. No international embarrassment. Or if you prefer, I'll have him killed. What's the price? You won't understand and I won't explain. But I want all the information and every scrap of evidence your police possess relating to the so-called vampire murders. Yeah. The problem with Christopher Lee is he often gets cast as very humourless authority figures. Uh, and he kind of plays them in a slightly humourless way. He's very stern and very sort of... Um, but he's actually capable when he when he loosens up a bit. He's he's much better, and I think he sort of he seems to be quite enjoying his part in there. I think having seen the oblong books, which um, Lee's also in, and he's good in that, and it's a slightly unusual part. He's neither the hero nor the villain. He gets to play some good conflicts in that. Um, I think he probably enjoyed working with with Gordon Hessler. Just to give the listener a bit of context on his role in this, yeah, he's a civil servant who is kind of overseeing. Uh, among other things, the, the the hunt for the vampire murderer, and think uh, information comes to him, and um, in fact, he, he the character he's playing is Fremont, who we've already um, depicted in our opening yes. scene, uh, <laughs> because we I like to think of what would happen if uh, the Cushing and Lee characters actually did meet shortly before this movie started, which I'm quite sure they actually did. Um, yeah. And so Fremont is dealing with, with the ramifications of the vampire killer investigation, and that brings him into contact with Conrats. Um, and there's, there is something strange that Conrats um, is called Conrats according to the credits, but in the film, on several occasions, he's called Conrad. <laughs> Christopher Lee definitely calls him Conrad. Oh. And I like to think this because he's just very friendly with him and it's his first name and his actual name is Conrad Conrad. Conrad Conrad. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, nothing would surprise me in this film, so if his name was Conrad Conrad. And he wears a very fetching cap, doesn't he? When he's in... When he's in Conrad in does, yeah, yeah. He wears like a flat cap. He's he? able to leave the, Eastern, the unnamed Eastern European country, come to England without any trouble. Um... And then he ends up, yeah, in sort of in the centre of London. Yeah, the way he dresses in the London scenes adds to his John Vaughness to me. <laughs> um, huh. uh, yeah, and um, so that that's kind of Lee's positioning in the film. And then later on, you you learn that there are more links between him and Conrad's, and there's a conspiracy element to it. But so you have um, what Con- the plot about what Conrad's is doing. You have the plot about the vampire killer. You have the very the, prob- the the wonderfully nightmarish, very simple ongoing thread of the guy who keeps well, that, waking up in the hospital bed. That, to me, is, is the most unnerving, scariest part of the film. Every time he wakes up, there's another limb missing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a nightmare. 
Yeah, yeah. And the way it's done, and this this blank faced nurse comes in, um, and puts something in his mouth all the time, and then it, <laughs> she goes out. He pulls back the uh, sheets, and then he's, there's another body part missing. And that really, I mean, but it just kind of like you know, you sort of get into that, and then suddenly you're, you're somewhere else. And um, I, I I don't know. I think it's you... almost like you know, uh, Amicus made anthology films, and it's almost like this is an anthology film, but all the stories are running. Con- Concurrently, almost, yeah. I, I, but I think that they they are cross cut just enough to keep your interest, and I, I think to a certain extent they reinforce each other. I mean, I think the police investigation led by Belliver is the most straightforwardly entertaining bit of the film. Yes, I think he, that works the best. He's such a great character. Yes, Belliver. Can't do one from the other of these bloody things. It smells like cheese. Looks like ham. No, not far wrong. It's chicken. Bloody problem is there's no motive to a sex crime apart from the sex. Yes, that bloody chicken wasn't killed, it died of old age. Alfred Marks apparently um, ad-libbed a lot of his dialogue and it's very funny. Well, except something else, it's quite like, for such a kind of wacky film, bizarre film, there's not much humour in it. No. Alfred Marks provides the humour as a sort of like cynical, sardonic police inspector who keeps joking about everything. And he, he gives the film a real kind of sense, you know, uh, an anchor to it, you know, it's sort of like, he... he anchors all the fanciful goings on and he makes it real and kind of authentic and you kind of believe in him. But you know what? I don't know much about Alfred Marx. Howard. Do you know much about him? Well, no. I mean, he was somebody who was... I mean, he. I think he was a comedian. Um, I don't know whether he was an actor who became a comedian or a comedian who became an actor, but certainly in the 70s and 80s, he was in things like The Sweeney and Minder and all those sort of things. I think I'd read... But in slightly kind of comical parts sort of thing. He was always... But he also, like, guest starred on various comedy shows being himself and being interviewed or... or... Right. So I, think, it, I think I read that he was a stand-up comedian. I th- he, was, he was a stand-up comedian. He's, he's in some comedy films in the, in the 50s. Oh, right. um, one of the guys who, as he went on, got more and more straight parts in things. And, and... But he was, you know, he was one of the, he was like a personality. He would, he would mm. be interviewed, he would, you know, go on chat shows and stuff. Um, and he's really, yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not in that many films. No. He, and certainly this well, is the only horror film he's been in. He's, he's this is the many. only film I've seen him in. Um, and I must have seen him in the Sweeney and things, but I don't because I've seen every episode. Of well, the he's Sweeney, in the Sweeney. But I don't remember the episode where he's got a dog. No, I remember this because um, I've got the box set, and there are like pithy summations of the plots of each episode. And the one for this episode says, "If dogs resemble their owners, then this Great Dane should not be at large, <laughs> because Mister Whatever is a villain." <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was that episode. He I did, do remember it. He. he he did. He did dramas, but he, he's always got kind of like a, a more humorous part. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, he, he was quite sardonic and quite wisecracking and sort of joking. And like he is in Scream and Scream again, it's that sort of part he plays where there is a lot of comedy. Yeah, but it, it adds real life to. Oh this yeah, film. no, he is. I think he's. Yeah, he he really gives it. A, you know, and he does get quite prominent billing at the beginning, so he must have been quite well known. Almost. Let's go full circle then and talk a little bit more about Vincent Price. And, and kind of wind up the discussion of the film because Vincent Price, his character really comes to the fore towards the end of the film. He's kind of in it throughout in bits, but the ending of the film is really all about him. Mm. And I don't want to give away too much about what happens, but I will say that in the book, The Disorientated Man, apparently the revelation at the end is that um, characters like Keith have been create uh, creatures that have been created by some aliens or something, oh. and Chris Wicking changed that. It's the only thing he, he majorly changed from the book because he thought it would be more interesting to imply that there was some kind of shadowy, earthbound conspiracy between certain characters that had given rise to this kind of vampire killer 
monstrous beings. Um, and I think it's okay to say that Vincent Price, you, you've already described him as a mad scientist. He's mm. he's a character who actually um, is responsible for creating some of these creatures. But he's he's not the number one guy. He he's he's working with other people and he's part of um a program of of, of some kind which he seems to believe is a good thing and he's yes. got us um he's got a sincere view on it and all the characters like Conrad's come along who have different ideas about you know they want power and things and he seems to be kind of horrified by mm. that. But at uh, the same time, yes, he does seem quite sympathetic. But I assume that Vincent Price is the man who keeps taking the jogger's limbs away. I think he is. I mean, this is interesting so, because um, I think that nightmarish subplot is really effective. But it did... Um, I don't think they even ever explain who that guy was. No. I like the fact that you see him fall down, you see him wake up. Every time he wakes up, he's missing a limb. And then eventually somebody opens a, a cabinet yeah. and his head's in it. <laughs> yeah. I've forgotten that bit. And that's, yeah. that is a kind of wonderful visual resolution to that plot thread. But at the same time, nobody ever says... Uh, who he is? No. Why, why did he fall over? Did, was he just ill, or had they planted well, something? Yeah, in him that's that... what bothered me. I always thought, well, how how did Vincent? Price, when I first saw this years ago, how did Vincent Price make him collapse? Hmm. Well, he didn't. He just assuming has a heart attack or something. He just collapses, whatever. But then, where is this? You know, how come nobody misses him? And, and uh, why is he taking his limbs off one at a time? It's 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 you know, kind of like I think <laughs> apparently in the book, maybe it was in the book. I read this. Um, there was probably, a, and I, I, I kind of tried to incorporate this into the comedy sketch, I think. There was a bit more, in the police investigation that was covering the vampire killer, there was also some crossover with they were looking for a missing athlete. Mm. So you found out about him through that. But they've I think they've cut all that out of the film. Um, while we're on that subject as well, the opening sequence of the film, which we played the music from, is just the jogger runs along as you described earlier and he falls over and the credits run over this footage of him running and looking more and more unwell at poor Nigel Lambert and then he just falls over. That's the, the opening title sequence. But did you know that originally it was going to have an animated opening title sequence no. by Terry Gilliam? Well, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was in, in like 68, 69. You know, you know, this was the very start of Monty Python. They weren't really established. Um, Terry Gilliam was obviously, you know, he's a member of that comedy troupe Monty Python and he used to animate things for them. But they, they, I think they maybe did their first series in 69. I think, yeah. So it's not like they were with a massive hit yet and he was probably looking around for any studio that he could do some animation for and he did animate um, a title sequence for this movie. Um, but unfortunately, apparently James H. Nicholson didn't like it. It was a bit wacky or yeah, something. Well, I can imagine that it so, was. So they cut it. Um, I, I wish they hadn't, though, because I think it would have suited this film. If mm. you watch the start of um, Cry of the Banshee, that does have a Terry Gilliam title sequence. And it does look like a Monty Python thing. This is like... it's. There's a load at the start of it. There's like pink clouds or something, and a load of bats fly out of it. And Vincent Price's head, and then his <laughs> mouth opens, and something comes out of his mouth. It, it, it but it, you know, but it has a kind of. Um, it works with the sense of being in a kind of demonic 
movie set in a crazy world, and I think Scream Scream Again is set in a very crazy world. Yes, I, I think. It but actually, I quite like I quite like the opening sequence because it's again it's sort of like saying oh, this is different to other horror films. Yeah, where other horror films start with a, a carriage ride through the woods or you know whatever something more gothic, and here was just this guy running by a road in front of some buses, and it's like, well, this is the modern day. This is kind of like an everyday situation, and then suddenly we're going into something really. Bizarre. It's true, actually, because even even among um, you know Gordon Hessler's other films, none of them are like this. Cry of the Banshee and Oblong Box are both gothic horror films, and later on he directed The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. You know, um, he also directed uh, a very good episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. Okay, well that's uh, more on the line of this then, because yeah. that's modern day the the Spanish moss monster, where there's this kind of swamp. A man's uh, being involved in a sleep experiment. And his dreams are coming to life. And he's created this creature from his nightmare. You know, it's come to life. He's been dreaming about it and it somehow has come to life. Uh, played by Richard Keel. Oh, from, right. You know, Jaws. In a big sort of costume. Uh, and it's really good. Uh, it's, really, it's, one of the, it's one of the best episodes. Because right. the way it's done. And it's sort of... Well, I can imagine that based on these movies, he's clearly a good fit for a kind of cop show director. And I can imagine that he did a lot of that stuff. I know that he worked mostly in American TV. But I just think it's interesting that out of the movies he made, I don't know any other, apart from this one, I don't know any others that are even set in the present day. No. Um, uh, he No, he might have made, in fact he did make, a thriller called Embassy all right. in the early 70s, which has, who's in it? Richard Roundtree, I think, Max von Sydow. Whoa. Ray Land, I think. Uh, it's not a very well-known film. It's not a very well-reviewed film, but it's a kind of like political thriller, right? Set somewhere, Austria or somewhere. I don't. I've seen it and I can't remember what goes on because it's a typically complicated spy thriller. But yeah, he did do that. So, right, okay. Um, that's a film I'd quite like to check out. <laughs> so at the end of the film, where two of the big three stars do come together, you do get both Christopher Lee and Vincent Price at the end of the movie, and you get a revelation of this big conspiracy, and that there are some people in it who are more kind of evil than others, and Vincent Price's character is, is quite conflicted. I don't think it's quite interesting, and it speaks to the kind of complexity that Christopher Wicking was trying to create, that essentially your star character, your Vincent Price character, isn't quite good or bad he he's in between and is able to express that and therefore you don't quite know what's going to happen at, at the end and i do remember no. thinking that when i watched it recently um it was the second time i'd seen the film i remember enjoying it before but um i had no idea what was going to happen uh i'd forgotten the ending and i do remember thinking i don't even know what's going to how are they going to resolve this? What's going to happen? Um, and you may argue that it doesn't resolve much. Well, it's but. difficult because there's a lot of kind of twists at the end, which, can, which we can't give away. Yeah, I, I forgot the ending. But ultimately, I recommend Scream and Scream again because I think it's not boring. I think it's interesting. I think in part it's exciting. It, um, a lot of it, some of it, the Alfred Mark stuff is funny, but in a way that reinforces the reality of of the rest of the movie. And it's just good fun. I, I kind of feel that it's a bit of a forgotten classic. I think it's a bit of an outlier in the in the canon of Christopher Lee Peter Cushing films that we're discussing because their contributions to it are not huge. But I do think it's great. I'm slightly less enthusiastic about it. I, it's certainly worth watching. And it's interesting in lots of different ways. It's interesting in what it says about British horror films at the time. It's interesting what it says about the three stars' career at the time. There's some great moments in it and some very kind of shocking moments and 
I can I can sort of admire what it's trying to be. For me, it just doesn't quite come off. It's just too confused and too fragmented and there's too much going on. Um, and But, you know, it's a film I certainly remember from when I watched it as a teenager, so it must have made an impression. Yeah, so and I mean... Watch I'm, it anyway. I kids. know for, my, my brother's um, 10 or maybe 15 years older than you and he remembers it really well from seeing it on TV. And um, especially the sequence where Belliver and his... Police guys are tracking down Keith and the big car chase, and they chase chase him through a quarry, and he falls down a, a massive um, quarry face, but isn't killed and stuff like this. And and it is all very exciting and, and excitingly done. Um, I think it's a robust movie, and I think it's interesting and fun. Um, I I recommend it quite highly, um, but. Um, you're slightly less enthusiastic. I'm, but... I'm less high. Yes. <laughs> but no, I think it's. I don't dislike it. I don't think it's bad or anything like that. I just, I just think I just find it very strange. And and I don't know. It's one of those films where the studio tampered with it after it was finished. You know, the sort of thing. Perhaps it made a bit more sense, and they changed things, whatever. I, I, um, Maybe. Uh, uh, and it is just a little bit disappointing that you've got these three great actors and they don't do very much. No, it's, uh, I agree there as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. But I think it's a it's a, it's a very entertaining and interesting film. And um, when you've got both entertaining and interesting at the same time, I think that's a pretty good score. So I am sad that I don't think Gordon Hessler made anything else uh, so interesting. But I would like to see Embassy. I'd, yeah. I'd track that down if I could. It's a bit um, obscure. Okay, so let, let's wind that up then. Um, that's Scream and Scream again. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening to our podcast. And we'll see you here when we'll be talking about Howard. The Hound of the Baskervilles! You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by T.D. Velasquez and Howard Whittaker. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.